Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hello everybody, my name is Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to my podcast in the book of Revelation. In this series of podcasts, we're going to look at the book of Revelation from chapters 1 through 22. What did John say? How would John's readers have understood what he said? And what does it mean for us today? After we survey the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, we'll then record some more podcasts that will examine some of the more popular topics. What about the beast and the Antichrist and the rapture and some of the more popular topics? For those of you who are interested, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, Follow the Lamb. It's a guide on how to read, understand, and apply the book of Revelation. For now, I hope you sit back and enjoy our study of the book of Revelation. Welcome to our first session on the book of Revelation. We're going to begin this morning with Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. He sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. The book of Revelation begins with the first four words being the revelation of Jesus Christ, three words in the Greek text. The text itself is actually a little bit unclear. The revelation of Jesus Christ can mean two things in Greek as well as even in English. It can be the revelation of Jesus, meaning it's the revelation about Jesus. Um, uh, Or it could be the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning it's the revelation from Jesus Christ. The only way to really answer this question, whether you're translating it from Greek into English or even looking at the uh, uh, ambiguity in the Greek t- in the English text is simply to go through the book itself and discern which one is it. Is it from Jesus Christ or is it about Jesus Christ? When we read through the whole text of the book of Revelation, we kind of conclude maybe it's a little bit of both. It appears to be a revelation from Jesus Christ. It appears that God gave it to Jesus, Jesus gave it to an angel, and an angel gave it to John. Uh, this is common in apocalyptic literature that uh, a message is mediated through an angel or through an angelic being. In this case, it's from God to Jesus, and then from Jesus to the angel, and from the angel to John. But at the same time, as we read the book of Revelation, we see it really is a revelation that's about Jesus Christ as well. The key vision in chapter 1 is a vision of where John sees Jesus, uh, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. It's a description of Jesus himself. So we might conclude that the revelation of Jesus Christ is both about Jesus and from Jesus. Then it says that it's about something that must shortly take place. This is often confusing and difficult to understand. Some believe that the book of Revelation describes events that are going to be fulfilled in the future. Maybe uh, commonly those who hold that belief uh, believe that it's going to be uh, our future or the near future. Uh, The idea then will be that John's telling about things that are going to take place in the future. The problem with that becomes uh, real simple. How could something that's going to shortly take place 2,000 years ago that still hasn't taken place yet uh, uh, be reconciled? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Uh, It makes more sense to say that John's referring to things that have already started or that that are being taken place in in his lifetime and refer to things that are going to be continuing to transpire. In fact, if we look carefully, and it's going to be difficult to do this via podcast, but if you were to carefully compare Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, uh, what must happen quickly, and then go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, and note where it says, what is about to happen after these things, and then compare chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, what must happen after these things? And Revelation 22, verse 6, what must happen quickly? Let me note again, Revelation 1, 1, 
119, 41, and 226. What we'll notice is that chapter 1, verse 1, and 22, 6, both, both are translated as what must happen quickly. Revelation 1, 19 and 4, 1, uh, both refer to what must happen after these things. Although 1, 19 says what is about to happen after these things. But note the parallels or the similarities between these four verses. Now let's compare those to three passages in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, chapter 2, verse 29, in chapter 2, verse 45. Daniel 2.28 will be translated, looking at the Greek text of Daniel chapter 2, says, what must happen in the last days? Uh, chapter 2, verse 29 says, what must happen in the last days? And Daniel 2.45 says, the things which will be in the last days. A comparison, especially the Greek text of Daniel chapter 2, uh, and Revelation 1, uh, 1, uh, 1, 19, 4, 1, and 22, 6, would, uh, would suggest strongly that John has taken a phrase very familiar to, the, to, the, to uh, John's readers from the book of Daniel. And he's simply taken the last part of Daniel 2, which says, in the last days, and, and, and uh, changed that or transformed that with quickly or with after these things. Uh, what appears to be the case then is that John's telling us that what has begun in the book of Daniel, or that what the book of Daniel describes has begun to be fulfilled in Jesus. Instead of happening in the last days, the last days are upon us, and now they're going to happen quickly or after, and, and after these things. The idea of quickly then suggests that this is already beginning to happen. As we proceed through the book of Revelation, we're going to see the parallels between Daniel and Revelation are going to be uh, uh, plentiful. And in particular, it appears that John is telling us that the prophecies in the book of Daniel, and not just Daniel, but, but throughout, the, throughout the Old Testament, but especially the book of Daniel, that the prophecies from the book of Daniel are being fulfilled in Jesus. Most notably, we're going to see in the middle of, the, uh, of uh, what I'm going to call the second story, which begins in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. Uh, you're going to see this, the Father having a scroll in his right hand, and Jesus taking the scroll, and uh, an angel crying out, you know, who's worthy to, to open the scroll? And uh, the, this scroll appears to be the scroll, likely the same scroll in the book of Daniel. If you want to skip ahead in your own studies to the book of Daniel, chapter 12, you'll notice that Daniel has a scroll and it has writing on the front side and on the back, just like the scroll in the book of Revelation. But that scroll in the book of Daniel is sealed shut, and Daniel's told that it's to be remained shut until the last days. No one is to open the scroll. But then when we go to the book of Revelation, we see that the scroll which is closed in chapter five of the book of Revelation, John begins to weep because no one's worthy to found no one's found worthy to open the scroll. And then an angel tells him, Stop weeping, because the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome so as to open the scroll. If this indeed is the same scroll that's in the book of Daniel, which was to be sealed shut for the, until the last days, the fact is that Jesus has come. And because Jesus is the lion of the, of the tribe of Judah who has become the lamb that was slain, because of, his, of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the book of Daniel can be opened, or the scroll in the book of Daniel can be opened. It can be unsealed. The contents are to be revealed. So I believe also then that the book of Revelation describes things that are being fulfilled amongst us at the time that John wrote, even before the time John wrote, continuing through the time John wrote, and even into the future. Uh, so this phrase then, what must take place shortly, probably connotes the fact that Daniel's prophecy is being fulfilled in our uh, time frame and in our presence. And furthermore, chapter 1, verse 1 says that, uh, that the angel, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him, uh, uh, was sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Now, the translation made it known or communicated, uh, depending on the different uh, English translations that you might be looking at, 
uh, it actually signifies something that uh, is to be made clear by means of sign or by means of symbol. Now, one of the problems that people have with the book of Revelation is understanding the imagery. Uh, and people get confused with the imagery. And one of the common approaches uh, uh, that's more in the popular Christian world is that the imagery must describe something that's literal. Uh, because if, if it's something literal, then, then we know exactly what the imagery means. Um, the sun becoming black and the stars becoming uh, falling from the sky means the sun becomes black and the stars fall from the sky. Um, it, it describes some literal, actual, physical phenomena. This takes the book of Revelation and makes it easy to understand in terms of whether we know exactly what it refers to or not, we know what the symbolism means or what the, what the language means. The symbols actually aren't even symbols. They're, they're describing literal, actual uh, uh, depictions. Uh, instead, however, John tells us right from, from the beginning of the book of Revelation that it's been communicated to us by his angel. And the word for communicated in the Greek is semano. Uh, and it means uh, something to be made known by a symbol or symbolic communication. In the Gospel of John, you might note that John never uses the word for miracle. Jesus' miracles in the book in the Gospel of John are always referred to as signs. Uh, this was the first sign that he did in Cana in, in John chapter 2, where Jesus turns water in, uh, into wine. Now, the reason for John telling us that these miracles are actually signs is because they a miracle for the Gospel of John signifies something greater. Not just simply that Jesus can turn water into wine, but that Jesus is the creator. So, so the miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John and then are signs pointing us to something deeper, something richer, not just that he's a miracle worker, but really ultimately who he is. So the Greek word for sign uh, or, uh, uh, in the Gospel of John is a noun form of the exact same word. Uh, the verbal form, semano, and the noun form, semeon, in the Gospel of John, both indicate something that's to be known by a symbol or a sign. So John tells us here, right from the very beginning in the book of Revelation, that I'm going to uh, unpack this by means of symbols. Now, this becomes a problem then if we say that they're actually symbols. They signify or symbolize something greater, something deeper, something richer than maybe that just beyond uh, the, the literal. Now, this becomes a problem for some people because they become uncomfortable with it. The idea being that if we say that they're actually symbols and signs and that they're not actually literal uh, descriptions of literal events, and then it, it, it makes it open to liberals interpreting it any way they wish. And we could take a meaning and, 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 and say it means this, and someone else can say it means that, and we have no way of knowing uh, who's right or who's wrong. And the answer becomes that's, that that's simply unfounded. The symbols in the book of Revelation are well-grounded. They're well-grounded for a number of reasons. Sometimes John actually tells us what the symbol means. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, so we know uh, the, the white robes in Revelation 19 uh, uh, stand for the righteous acts of the saints. So we, we understand uh, oftentimes in the book of Revelation what the symbol means because John will tell us. But in many occasions, we don't know. Uh, we don't know right away anyways. Uh, but the reality is that the symbols themselves are still grounded and they're well grounded primarily in the Old Testament. John's readers, who have been much more adept at reading the Old Testament than we are, would have understood the symbols much more simply than we would. For us, however, even still, if we simply go back to the Old Testament passages from which John is perhaps alluding to, we can have a good understanding as to what these symbols mean. These symbols were common in the ancient world, especially in apocalyptic literature. There were thrones and rainbows. There were white robes and palm branches. There were beasts and women clothed with the sun and stars and the sea and scrolls and eating scrolls. Um, these symbols are, are, are going to be well grounded in the fact that they're coming from an Old Testament context. So it's going to be important for us then, 
as we proceed through the book of Revelation, to not just simply understand the Old Testament context from which they come, but also to see how John is reading that passage in light of Jesus. If, as I noted earlier, that John is telling us that the prophecies of the Old Testament are being fulfilled in and through Jesus, most notably his death and his resurrection, as well as, by the way, in the continuous life of the church, carrying forth the ministry of Jesus as the light of the world. Remember, we are the lampstands after all. Then the meaning of those passages in the Old Testament are coming to light in and through Jesus. So it'll be important to say, what does it mean in its Old Testament context? But secondly, what did it mean to John and his readers as understood in light of Jesus himself? Verse 2 says that he bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, this phrase is going to be important. It's going to be a repeated theme, perhaps, of the book of Revelation. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. They, they probably refer to the same thing, by the way, that the word of God is, in fact, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so, again, understanding that the word of God, this Old Testament context, is fulfilled through the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, it separates the, the faithful from the faithless. The faithful are the ones who hold to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And we'll see this throughout the book of Revelation uh, a number of times. Now, again, the testimony of Jesus can be just as unclear as the revelation of Jesus Christ was unclear in verse 1. It can refer to the testimony about Jesus or Jesus' own testimony. Now, in the book of Revelation, this passage, this phrase will actually be a little bit simpler to understand. Oftentimes, you'll see that the, the people of God die because of the testimony of Jesus. And, of course, there it means the testimony that's about Jesus. Verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who heeds, who reads these words, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. It's very important to remember that, G that the book of Revelation, along with the biblical text, was a text that was going to be read out loud. It's just simply the fact that people in those days didn't have uh, individual copies that they all brought their Bibles to church. Uh, instead, there was one copy in the local church setting, and that one copy was going to be read aloud. John says, blessed is the one who reads. Uh, and that's singular. And then he says, and blessed are those who hear the words. Now, hearing the words means that the book of Revelation was meant, again, to be heard. So when we understand the structure and the contents and the flow of the, of the story itself and the narrative itself, it's going to be important to note how, the, how that narrative would have been heard. For example, the hearers in chapter 6 of the seven seals are going to hear that John saw a lamb break one of the seven seals, and then he heard one of the four living creatures say, Come. Then in verse 3, he uh, John saw, uh, when, when he broke the second seal, I, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Verse 5, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. Verse 7, when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. But all of a sudden, in verse 9, it says, When he broke the fifth seal, I saw. And all of a sudden, John's hearers would recognize the, the change, that something is different. The first four seals are all broken, and, and John's going to hear a voice saying, Come. But in verse 9, when the fifth seal is broken, he's going to say, I saw underneath the altar. So something's going to be different. So the book of Revelation was meant to be heard. Now at the same time, we're going to notice that there's seven Beatitudes. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words and those who heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. The word blessed occurs seven times in the book of Revelation. As we proceed through our studies, we're going to note things uh, common patterns or, or, or the importance of numbers in particular, how words or phrases are going to be used a certain number of times. Seven, of course, represents perfection or completion. In seven days, God created the world. Throughout the book of Revelation, we'll see key names and words for God. They're going to be used seven times. 
So also the idea of seven beatitudes or seven seven blessings appear in this book. Now this is perfection and completion in terms of uh, uh, for its readers and hearers and those who do uh, what it says. Now its hearers and keepers, of course, stresses obedience. The, the one who reads it is going to be blessed, but even more so, of course, the one who hears the words of the prophecy and the one who heeds the things which are written in it for the time is near. This brings us to an important point. The book of Revelation can't simply be something that John wrote in the first century that well, referred to something that might happen 2,000 or so years later. After all, if it was, then the, re- the meaning of the passage would have had no significance to John and his readers. If John's describing nuclear warfare, as some have proposed in the 20th century, the suggestion that John's describing nuclear warfare and, and, and a physical, literal battle here on, on earth, the problem with that is that its meaning would have been totally uh, irrelevant to John's readers and John's hearers. They wouldn't have understood what he was talking about. If he's describing nuclear warfare, they didn't know what that meant. Uh, and so uh, the meaning of the passage would have escaped them. But if the meaning of the passage escapes them, then it becomes impossible for them to heed the things which are written in it, You know, to do it, to apply it, to not just hear the words, uh, read the words and hear the words, but to actually do what it says. And later on in chapter 13, we're going to see the famous passage about the number 666. And John says, if anyone has insight, let him calculate the number. For the number is that of a man. Well, again, this suggests that John's readers have some under, uh, some indication as to what uh, John's talking about. And John seems to indicate uh, by a clue word, hey, look, you know exactly what I mean. If you have wisdom, calculate the number. You can figure out what that number is and what it refers to. And then, of course, you can be obedient. Uh, <clears throat> to, to not understand what the passage is about or to, to, to suggest that it describes nuclear warfare in the 21st century meant that the, the text would have been totally irrelevant and totally meaningless uh, to John's uh, original hearers. Furthermore, if we were to do a study of the nature of apocalypse and prophecies and letters, etc., we would be reminded of the fact that the entirety of the biblical text, from Isaiah in the Old Testament to the book of Romans in the New Testament, in every instance, the biblical text was written to a particular audience uh, at a particular time. We, we talk about the book of Ephesians and we say, in order to understand the book of Ephesians, you have to know that Paul wrote the book and that he wrote it from this particular place and he wrote it to these particular people. You have to be familiar with the customs and the culture and the language. And we understand that when we do Bible studies, it's important to get ourselves in deeply enriched in the background of what's going on. How would these words have been meant to, to have been understood? How would they have been understood and heard uh, by the original audience? And what's the context? What's the cultural? But all of a sudden, when we go to the book of Revelation, it's suggested that this has nothing to do with the culture of their day, but only has to do with the 21st century or some future uh, generation where John's prophesying about something that's going to happen in the distant future. Now, I noted a second ago that the book of Revelation has actually three uh, genres. Uh, it's an apocalypse. It's a prophecy. It says here in verse 3, Blessed are those who hear the words of the prophecy. Um, it refers to itself, in fact, a, a few times uh, as a prophecy. But it also has the form of a letter. John's going to describe himself in verse 4 saying, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. That's how letters are commonly introduced. It's going to end with the words, Amen. Uh, Chapters 2 and 3, of course, are going to contain seven letters to seven churches in the region uh, of John's uh, uh, location in Ephesus. So we see that the book of Revelation is not simply just an apocalyptic writing, um, but it's also a prophetic writing, and it's also a letter. Well, the reality is that actually in all three of these genres, the meaning of the text is still going to be something which would have been significant and understood by the people of that day. This is easy to understand when it comes to a letter. As we mentioned with the book of Ephesians, we understand letters are written as an occasional thing 
from an individual to another individual or to a, a church or a group of individuals, that there's a setting, a context, a purpose, a reason for writing these letters, no problem. Well, the book of Revelation describes itself as a letter. And because it's a letter, we need to understand who John was, when did he write, why did he write, and to whom did he, was he writing. And even more importantly, how would they have understood what John had said? It had to have meaning to its first century audience. But the same is also true with prophecies. Prophecies were the words of a prophet given to a particular people at a particular time for a particular purpose. The prophets in the Old Testament especially were most concerned with being faithful to the law, being faithful to God's covenant promises. The prophets arose at a time when the people had most often fallen away from God's covenant promises. And the prophets come along and remind the people, hey, listen, this is what God has told us, most notably in, in the book of Deuteronomy. This is his promises of blessings for those who are obedient to the law, and this is the promise of curses for those who are disobedient to the law. The prophets were these prophetic reminders or prophetic warners, uh, telling the people, this is what God has said, and this is what we need to do. Now, the prophets may have referred to things that might have been fulfilled hundreds or thousands of years later. That is true. But at the same time, the prophets' words were written and spoken in a particular time, in a particular moment, that would have had an understanding and meaning uh, to the people that day, most notably the people and their responsibility to be faithful to God's covenant promises. Now, when it comes to an apocalypse, it's very similar to a prophecy. Uh, apocalyptic writers basically thought that uh, the people of God were undergoing some tremendous uh, tragedy or suffering or intense period of persecution and suffering. Uh, apocalyptic writers then came along to remind the people that God is sovereign and, and in control over all. In the book of Revelation, of course, it's God is the King of kings and Lord of lords, or the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. It's this reminder that God's in control and that despite your suffering, God remains in control. And if you remain faithful and obedient for just a little while, God will indeed provide redemption for his people. Now, apocalyptic writers then would often use this cosmic language, this language, what I like to refer to as cosmic upheaval language. The sun becomes black and the moon becomes like blood and the stars from the sky fall, uh, fall to the earth. Uh, it's this language where even the heavens are being uh, uh, rendered uh, uh, into chaos. Uh, and the reason for that is because in an apocalyptic way, it's a way of saying the only way to describe God's breaking into history God's in the, in the midst of acting, and, and God's acting is, is, is breaking into history. And the only way to describe that is with this cosmic upheaval language. Uh, the heavens are parting because God is speaking, and uh, the sun's becoming blackened, and, uh, and the moon's becoming like blood because God is acting in history. So it's this great language of cosmic upheaval. You see that, by the way, not just in the book of Revelation. You see it throughout the New Testament, in fact. Jesus um, uh, uh, crucifixion it refers to darkness uh, being upon uh, upon the world, or in the book of Acts uh, at the uh, at the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is sent out, you see a violent wind and flames of fire, and then you see Je um, uh, Peter referring to the book of Joel and the prophecy in the book of Joel that the sun will become black and the moon will become blood on that great and terrifying day of the Lord. Uh, we also see, by the way, Jesus' par um, parables, him going to be using this what's called an apocalyptic catchphrase. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, that phrase is going to repeat itself every, in every one of the seven letters in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. But there also, that phrase also appears when Jesus tells a parable, especially in the Gospel of Mark. So the idea of apocalyptic, then, is not something that's simply foreign uh, to the biblical world and they're describing something they have no idea what it really means, and so they have no other way to say it except 
the sun's becoming black. Instead, they're using this common language that was relevant and understood by the people of that day, this cosmic upheaval language to describe God as breaking into history. Now, let me close this first session with one more thought. Now, what we're going to read about in the book of Revelation, the message and the moral of the story and, and the exhortation or encouragement to God's people, um, is, is going to be uh, points and issues that are going to be found throughout the entirety of the New Testament. In other words, every one of the key themes or every one of the key points that we're going to make based on what we read in the book of Revelation can be found elsewhere. Sometimes people have this conception that the book of Revelation describes only the future things and it's relevant only to this future generation. Instead, the book of Revelation is going to continue the same message that's found throughout the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Jesus has overcome through his death and resurrection. Jesus has the keys of, of death and Hades, and therefore there's nothing to fear because he has conquered and he has overcome. And now you and, and me and the rest of and the people of God, we are called and exhorted to overcome, to persevere in faithful witness, to lay down our lives for the sake of Jesus, or as the Gospel of Mark would say, to take up our crosses and follow him, knowing that Jesus has overcome. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time. Thank you.